welcome back um, to Spain 1959-1992. On the 20th of December 1973, the president of the Spanish government, Admiral Luis Carrero Blanco, was killed in a car bomb attack in Madrid. The 70-year-old died instantly after a remote-controlled bomb was detonated as he passed. A massive explosion sent the car spiralling up into the air and over the roof of the church where Carrero had just been attending mass. ETA, a Basque terrorist group, had dug up a tunnel under the street and planted a pile of explosives. Some critics say Carrero's murder was key to ensure that Francoism did not survive Franco's death. In one writer's opinion, Carrero was the nearest thing to an alter ego Franco would ever have. And indeed, in his old age, Franco delegated on Carrero and he appointed him president in June 1973. So that's six months before his murder. Hello. Um, by the way, um, terminology-wise, president is the term uh, used in Spain for prime minister, so like the German chancellor. So Franco appoints Carrero Blanco president in June 1973, um, which makes him the effective head of the government. Now, this was the first time that Franco did not hold both... Um, he was not both the head of the state and the head of government, and that had been the case since the start of the Civil War in 1936, the Civil War which ended in 1939. So on this very day, um, there's a court case scheduled against 10 trade union members. Now, um, the right to strike was forbidden during the Franco regime, um, and as we uh, talked about last week, the Communist Party set up a illegal trade union and um, infiltrated the legal, the only legal syndicate there was. So uh, the Franco regime found out and took them to court. So the, um, the court case was scheduled for this very day. Now, the day prior to Carrero's murder, Secretary of State Kissinger, the US Secretary of State, is in town, and they meet. Um, Kissinger was in Europe to attend the NATO ministerial meeting the Winter Ministerial Meeting, and 1973, um, he'd announced, was the year of Europe. Um, actually, that was almost the only thing it was not. But before I go on to talk about more about Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy, allow me to quickly remind you of the structure for today's lecture. First, I will address this week's questions, as laid out in the handout, and um, I hope you can see them up there. So today's two questions are, was Spain's transition to democracy inevitable? And who were the transition's main actors? So inevitability and agency are two of today's themes. Then I will discuss how to use ambassadorial cables in historical research, so diplomatic correspondence. And we'll take a look at the US ambassador to Spain's cable, so his report after his first meeting with President, the newly appointed President, Adolfo Suárez, in August 1976. Finally, we will take a look at Carmen Martín Gaita's 1978 novel, El Cuarto de Atrás, 
which was translated by Helen Lane in the year 2000 as The Backroom. Martin Gaibet wrote the book um, in, from, well, she wrote the book between 1975, the year of Franco's death, and 1978, the year the, Spanish, the new Spanish constitution was passed. So she writes during this transition, um, the process of transition. Hello. Uh, by the way, Martin Gaiteng won the National Novel Prize in 1978 for The Backroom, and she was the first woman to receive this prize. So on Carrero Blanco's death, Franco appoints interior minister Carlos Arias Navarro, president of the realm. Now, this idea of realm is particularly important because in 1947, after World War II, Franco declares Spain a kingdom. So, in a way, Franco wants to legitimize himself not only by um, through the uprising, the military uprising in July 1936, as well as the victory against the Republicans in the Civil War, he also wants to legitimize himself by using Spain's royal past. So he does this not only by eating from uh, the bone china, like royal bone china set, uh, dinner sets, but also by living in El Pardo Palace, which is the oldest royal palace in Madrid uh, from the 1500s. Um, so in a way, uh, he was the ruler of a realm with no king. And Franco's strained relation with monarchy, um, we can see that particularly uh, when he appoints, uh, um, in 1969, when he appoints Don Juan Carlos, King Alfonso XIII's grandson, who had gone into exile in 1931. So he, Franco appoints uh, Juan Carlos his heir. And he gives them the title of Prince of Spain, which is a completely new coined uh, title, there was no tradition in Spain for that title because the usual title for a crown prince is the Prince of Asturias, so like the Prince of Wales um, uh, here in the UK. So he gives them a, a completely new title. Hello. Um, in, and then that, to show that Juan Carlos' legitimacy as ruler, as future ruler, did not come from Spain's royal past, but rather from Franco's present realm. <laughs> In April 1974, Portugal, where Don Juan Carlos's father, um, who was in exile, Don Juan, he'd set up headquarters there. So in Portugal, April 1974 was in turmoil. On 25th April 1974, there was a left-wing military coup against the over-40-year long dictatorship of Salazar and then Caetano. So, the so this military uprising, also known as the Carnation Revolution, must be understood in terms of Portugal's colonial wars in Angola and in Mozambique, and in the Cold War context. Um, and these wars began back in, early 1960, in the early 60s, um, when the decolonization process in the UN uh, begins. Spain's left opposition, writes historian Charles Powell, naturally read Caetano's failure to perpetuate the Zalazar dictatorship beyond his retirement as evidence that something similar could be expected in Spain after Franco's death. But the threat of a communist takeover in Portugal initially led the US administration, and particularly Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State, 
to view further political change in the Iberian Peninsula with deep apprehension. The German Social Democrats play a very important role here, both in Portugal and Spain, because when they see that the communists are becoming very powerful in Portugal, they decide to take action and to support Mario Suárez's um, Socialist Party in Portugal. And later on, in Spain, they support the Socialist Party led by uh, Felipe González, who's a young labor lawyer from Seville. So there's an issue in Spain about who the real Socialist Party is, who should um, inherit the historic Socialist Party, which was founded in 1879. And to make sure that um, the Socialist Party has a chance to take, uh, to take over the left or to represent the left in Spain, the, so the German Social Democrats support the Socialist Party against the communists. So um, news of the Portuguese revolution was censored in Spain. Uh, and meanwhile, inter-party and intra-party animosity <coughs> continues. So like how we were discussing last week, how there's uh, animosity between different parties of political opposition against Franco, um, but there's also issues, there are also issues within um, political parties of opposition. And in July 1974, the Spanish Communist Party, along with Democrat monarchists, so it seems a bit of an odd mix, um, so commun the Communist Party and Democrat monarchists pushing for the claims of Don Juan, who is in Portugal, found a democratic junta. A year later, in July 1975, socialists, liberals and left-wing Christian Democrats <coughs> set up the platform of democratic convergence. So we see here this um, opposition, um, this fight for democracy done in two separate organizations. One is communist-led, the other one is social, um, socialist-led with other parties. So there's the Paris-Toulouse uh, Paris Toulouse split I, I mentioned uh, uh, last week. So though divided and though it um, however, though divided and though it included several mi minute taxi parties, so-called because all these all party members could fit into one car, um, the opposition was roughly united in its program, a democratic rupture, ruptura democratica, which entailed a provisional government, a constituent uh, parliament to decide on future institutions, full democratic freedoms and total political amnesty. So they were divided, but in a certain way unified in the, united in this in these aims. Franco died on 20th November 1975. In his will, which was read out on television, Franco told the military to be loyal to your new king as you were to me. For three days, thousands of Spaniards walked by Franco's coffin at the Royal Palace in Madrid. Um, again, his love for all things royal is apparent here. Um, Franco's funeral is important in Carmen Martín Gaite's novel, which we'll talk about later. So let's just make a mental note of it now, and like the impression um, it makes on us. King Juan Carlos swore to keep to the regime's fundamental laws. Um, at a religious ceremony of thanks that was kept separate from his proclamation at, um, as king in Parliament, in the Francoist Parliament, Cardinal Tarancón, who was Archbishop of Madrid 
and President of Spain's Synod of Bishops, exhorted the king to be the king of all Spaniards, rey de todos los españoles. So not just king to those who had won the war, but to all Spaniards, to the civil war. And the cardinal prayed for legal political structures that offer all citizens the possibility to participate freely and actively in the life of the country and in its concrete government policies. His speech was full of explicit references to the Second Vatican Council, so the 1960s, from the mid-1960s. Um, extreme right-wing um, supporters, however, would often chant Tarancón al Paredón, or in English, Tarancón off to the firing squad. Unlike Franco's funeral, um, several international high-level representatives atten attended King Juan Carlos' um, ceremony of thanks, including the US Vice President Rockefeller uh, and the President of France, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing. Like he did with France, President Giscard d'Estaing was keen to endorse and somehow oversee Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy. Much, it must be said, to King Juan Carlos's annoyance. And in fact, we know this by looking at what would be the White House uh, memo, like equivalent we looked at yesterday, so the Elysee Palace um, memos, when um, the president, the new elected president of France, Mitterrand, in 1981, he gets a call from King Juan Carlos, and he and um, the King of Spain tells him, I hope that you, you do not have any advice to give me, in reference to the unnecessarily paternalistic and innumerable recommendations from um, Mitterrand's prede predecessor at the Elysee Palace. King Juan Carlos inherited Franco's last, last government. Spain's fundamental laws did not allow the king to sack the prime minister, even though he might not have liked him. <coughs> the only way he, um, he could get rid of the prime minister was if the prime minister, the president of the government, handed in his resignation. While several reformist big shots joined Carlos Arias' um, government, including Manuel Fraga and José María de Ereiza, who were both former ambassadors to the UK and France, the monarchy's first cabinet was still full of bunker-type Francoists, including the indecisive president, Arias Navarro. In light of his immobilism, so his deep-seated resistance to political change, the two organizations we talked about, the Junta and um, the Platform, came together in March 1976. It was at a joint session in the United States Congress in June 1976 that King Juan Carlos first publicly spoke of democracy for Spain. He was invited over to celebrate the 20th anniversary of American independence. Um, as one of the uh, as representative of one of the countries who had initially supported the 13 colonies um, winning their independence. So he says that the monarchy will oversee that, under the premises of democracy, there is social peace and political stability in Spain, as well as orderly access to power of the different alternatives of government according to the freely expressed will of the people. That was my translation. You can find it in Spanish. 
Um, after the King's trip to Washington, President Arias turned in his resignation. The Council of the Realm, another of Franco's royal-sounding institutions, nominated uh, a list of three candidates for the office of Prime Minister. So how it worked was the, royal, um, the Council of the Realm um, decided on three names, then handed those three names over to the King for him to decide who, out of those three names, would um, be the new president. Luckily, the King's mentor and political law professor, Torquato Fernández Miranda, was both the president of the Council of the Realm and of the Francoist Parliament. Minister Arelza, so one of the reformist big shots I mentioned earlier, um, seemed like a sure bet, but the King's choice was Adolfo Suárez. Raymond Carr, the historian um, and former St. Anthony's uh, warden here at Oxford, describes Suárez as young, ha a handsome 43-year-old, who was a former civil governor and TV director. So Suárez was the director of the BBC equi equivalent in Spain. He was still president of a political association committed to continuity, although in its more moderate form. Suárez was a provincial man, um, born in Old Castile, who started off basically as a porter in one of Madrid's many ministry buildings and then moved up. According to Felipe González, who would later go on to be, to be Spain's longest-serving president and first socialist prime minister, at that moment, the king served as a constitutional monarch without there yet being a constitution. It was a magnificent intuition of the king who, vested with full powers, chose not to exercise them. So, in, in other words, the king gave up his powers, he gave up his inheritance. The new prime minister, however, was greeted with dismay. The press did not think much of him at all. Adolfo Suárez's first task, however, was to draw a law for political reform. And the idea was to convince the Francoist parliament that it needed to dissolve itself. So basically, Suárez had to convince the Francoist parliament to commit harakiri. I think that's a particularly um, clever way of, of putting it. Uh, Carr comes up with that. And um, Suárez succeeds. And the law for political reform set up a two-chamber parliament elected by universal suffrage. So once the uh, Francoist parliament dissolves itself, the bill is put to referendum. And the result was overwhelming support for the bill, with 97% of voters in favour on a turnout of 77. And that was less than six months into Suárez's presidency. Soon after, the idea of a democratic rupture was dropped in favour of a negotiated rupture. And indeed, Suárez was not afraid to establish informal contacts with opposition leaders, unlike Prime Minister Arias before him. And we need to remember that political parties are illegal in Spain at the time. They're illegal, but tolerated. And in December 1976, the Socialist Party, although theoretically still illegal, holds its, its first Congress in Spain since the Civil War and gets um, Social Democrat leaders from around Europe to come to Madrid to support Felipe González's Socialist Party. So like Willy Brandt comes over, Olaf Palma, the Swedish Prime Minister, Bruno Kresge, the um, Austrian Prime Minister. 
Two months later, in February 1977, the government legalizes the Socialist Party, along with other political, um, the other political parties, except the Communist Party. So the issue with legalizing the Communist Party is that um, if the government did that, it was clearly going against one of the fundamental principles of the Franco regime, because it self-defined itself as anti-communist. And the military particularly were, um, in, within their framework, this idea of anti-communism uh, was very much ingrained. US Secretary of State Kissinger did not think it really necessary um, to legalize the Communist Party anyway. Um, but White House memos show that the king supported Suarez's personal decision to legalize the Communist Party. So it's a very risky thing to do. With its legalization, Santiago Carrillo's Communist Party accepted the monarchy and the call for elections. They initially wanted an interim national unity government. So Spain's first free elections were held in June 1977. So that's the Time magazine um, US cover, and this is the Europe um, magazine cover. So Spain's first free elections were held in June 1977. Suarez has no party at this, uh, at this time. Um, so he has to put together a political party to actually run in the elections. So he quickly puts up, um, together a coalition party made of liberals, Christian Democrats, social, dem social Democrats, and former Francoist reformists in what was called the Union for the Democratic Center, UCD. There was a high turnout of 80% in the, the first free elections in Spain. And in Karl's words again, the results showed that the electorate rejected both the extreme right and the extreme left. The results were a triumph alike for moderation and a desire for change at the same time. The UCD, Suarez's party, won the elections with 34% of the votes, followed by Gonzalez's Socialist Party with 28%. Now, this was particularly striking because the Communist Party uh, was expected to get um, the representation of the left, but instead it was a socialist party who did so. And the communists won less than 10%, as um, Fraga's conservative uh, grouping, Fraga, who was a minister in the previous and the first royal government, also got 10%. So while the communist party was the main bulwark of opposition to the repressive dictatorship for 36 years, uh, membership and activity within the Spanish Communist Party represented less of a commitment to communism than to anti-Francoism. So um, it seems that the electorate were, more, were keen to support the Communist Party when it represented anti-Francoism um, than when it uh, was already allowed to vote, and then it uh, decided that their vote would go to other parties, not to the Communist Party. Juan Linz, the Yale politics and sociology scholar, notes that in understanding the Spanish transition and the appeal of the king, Suarez and Gonzalez, an important factor was their youthful age. 
They did what their elders did not want to do or failed to do. They represented a break with the past. A break, yes, but, no, a, but not a break with conflict. In um, Paul Hayward's words, the Socialist Party, in contrast to the Communist Party, was led by youthful and dynamic leaders uh, which were not associated with the tragic events of the 1930s. So not, they were not associated with the Civil War. In an election where image was of great importance, they remember that Adolfo Suarez had been the director of the Spanish national TV, um, and he was a consummate television performer, the communists seemed out of touch with the popular desire to reconstruct Spain. But uh, at this time, Spain's economy is in tatters, um, partly to do with the 1973 oil crisis. So the consequences of it had not been dealt uh, with properly in Spain. And after the summer of 1977, uh, so after the first free elections, Suárez sat down with the opposition and the trade unions to negotiate an emergency plan, an economic emergency plan. Um, the Moncloa Pacts, um, as they were called, froze wages, cut spending, and raised taxes in return for new social benefits. This is a picture from the Moncloa Pacts. The Moncloa is the presidential palace in Spain. <coughs> the value of the Moncloa Pacts, however, was not so much in its content. Its true value was its modus operandi. The key word here is consensus, consenso. And González, the um, former socialist president in Spain, adds that this is why the Moncloa Pact prepared us for the constitutional negotiation. After 18 months of negotiations, Parliament passed Spain's new constitution in October 1978. The constitution was then put to referendum and approved on the 6th of December 1978 by over 90%. Voter turnout was 67%. Um, the Constitution Rights Car, which established a democratic constitutional monarchy, was the first Spanish constitution which was not imposed by a party, but represented a negotiated compromise among all major parties. I'll stop there, but um, why stop with the 1978 constitution I guess the answer is the very definition of the transition, which is to go from one type of a regime to another. However, periodization is an issue historians constantly need to grapple with. Indeed, some scholars argue that Spain's transition actually spills over into the 1980s, so rather than stopping in 1978, so it spills into the 1980s with the February 1981 attempted military coup in the Spanish parliament, or even to the Socialist Party's landslide victory at the polls in 1982. So that's seven years after Franco's death. I don't think Franco was expecting that. Indeed, US Secretary of, um, so actually the US Secretary of State, when he comes for the first time to Spain, um, when the socialist government come into office, he and the foreign affairs minister um, talk about whether 
um, whether the true test of democracy lies in alternating govern uh, governing parties. But I think what I want to suggest is that there is a difference between transition to democracy and consolidation of democracy. Other scholars think of Spain's transition to democracy in terms of its domestic transition and its international transition. So they separate these two spheres as a game played on two different chessboards. But I will discuss these issues next week and the following week. Spain's transition to democracy served as an inspiration and somewhat of a blueprint for many later transitions world over, especially in Latin America and the Soviet Union. In fact, I even noticed that the Spanish Transition Foundation's website was translated into Arabic a few years back as the Arab Spring spread. Um, President Ricardo Lagos of Chile actually says in his, that his conversations on democratization, so we, must, we, uh, we need to think about the 1973 coup against Salvador Allende, who was the um, elect, le legal elected uh, president in Chile, so, uh, and uh, Pinochet's um, coup against him. So President Ricardo Lagos of Chile says his conversations on democratization with Felipe González had a real impact on him. And actually, they use, the Chilean leaders use um, images and analogies to do with the Spanish transition, such as, um, you will be Adolfo Suárez and I will be Felipe González. Even Secretary General and later President of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev, said in 1990, in Spain, you know this well, over a short time, you have dismantled authoritarian structures bloodlessly and effected an orderly, smooth transition to democratic forms of government and public life. The peoples of Spain have opted for state integrity, national accord, and civil peace. The problem of consolidation and civil peace has come to face my vast country squarely today, 1990. Your experience, he concludes, without doubt is worth close examination. Felipe González, however, is of the opinion that you can't generalise. Each case is unique. In contrast, some Samuel Huntington, a well-known Harvard politics scholar, introduces the term third wave to describe the global trend, so the move, uh, global move towards democracy, starting with the Portuguese Carnation Revolution in 1974. Huntington um, identifies five causative factors for this third wave, um, the decrease in legitimacy, economic development at home and globally, changes in the Catholic Church, so the Second Vatican Council, regional Chernobyl effects, um, and external factors, especially the US and the European economic community's efforts to spread democracy. But instead, um, today I chose to emphasise agency and uncertainty. And it is surprising that Juan Linz, who is particularly known for his development and analysis of distinct regime types found around the world, would concede that individuals made the difference in Spain's transition to democracy. Linz calls it innovative leadership, and he pays considerable attention to the moderating role of the king, the constructive leadership of Santiago Carrillo, the prudence of Cardinal Tarancón, 
the parliamentary negotiating abilities of Torquato Fernández Miranda, so the president of the Council of the Realm and the Francoist Parliament, and the cooperation of the conservative leader Manuel Fraga. Spain's foreign affairs minister in 1976, José María de Arelza, so one of the uh, reformist big shots I mentioned, describes the king as described the king then as the motor of the transition. So the king, in his opinion, is the transition's energy source. Charles Powell, the historian, in his monograph on the king, however, describes Juan Carlos less as a motor, but as the transition's pilot. To different parts of the car. On the other hand, Archie Brown's um, 2014 book on leadership, he's incidentally the world's leading scholar on Gorbachev and an emeritus professor here at Oxford, describes President Adolfo Suárez as a transformative leader of the likes of Gorbachev and Mandela. Um, and by a transformational leader, he means one who plays an indispensable role in effecting systematic transformation, going from one political type of political regime to another. As I mentioned earlier, President Adolfo Suárez's appointment by the king in 1976 took everyone by surprise. And I want to show you what the U.S. ambassador to Madrid, Weld Stabler, thought of his first meeting with Adolfo Suárez in August 1976. So this is an ambassadorial cable. You can see it on the board, but okay, you can't really. Um, but you can see it. It's a screenshot I put in your handouts. I think it's page two. So ambassadorial cables are diplomatic correspondence ambassadors send back to their home government. So if language is not a problem, problem in, so in the sense of you can read these um, um, cables, they offer a way in, uh, to a world we would otherwise have limited access to, uh, particularly because political leaders sometimes feel more comfortable and speak more freely with foreigners than with fellow nationals, and also because how others react and report on national events can influence events at home. So foreign perspectives on home affairs matter. So I'll just tell you how to um, read this, because it's not obvious. The first thing we need to do is find out um, the date and time the cable was sent. Um, so if you look at your handout, just below the little dots, the row of dots, there um, you can see 061459 August 76. What that means is the cable was sent on the 6th of August 1976 at um, 14.59, so 2.59 in the afternoon. The following row, um, row tells us where the cable was sent from, so AM Embassy, American Embassy in Madrid, to the Secretary of State um, in Washington. So I just want to um, make a quick uh, point about the limitations of uh, these di diplomatic sources. And I thought of a book, a manual, a 16, um, released, well, published in 1620 um, by a Spanish nobleman who was a diplomat, um, Juan Antonio de Vera, de Vera y Figueroa. 
And uh, in his manual, which was widely read in the early 17th century and was soon translated into French and Italian, so he gets his characters, um, it's, it's a dialogue between two characters, Giulio and Ludovico. Ludovico's De Vera's mouthpiece, so the author's mouthpiece. So he gets his two characters to discuss things such as does an ambassador um, tell the truth or does he tell what the emperor wants to hear? Does he uh, tell the truth or does he make himself look good in his reports that he sends back home? So I think that beyond um, their relevance to the early modern period or even to, the, to ancient Rome because they use examples um, to think about these questions from ancient Rome. So beyond that, I think they're quite relevant when we look at um, diplomatic correspondence. So what does this ambassadorial cable tell us about the Spanish transition? In his report, Ambassador Stabler immediately picks up on Suarez's new style and tone, so what Linz was telling us about a generational jump. Stabler writes, Suarez realised at the outset that his appointment as Prime Minister has, had not been enthusiastically received either in Spain or abroad. And indeed, the daily newspaper El País sounds rather taken aback by Suarez's appointment and does not expect much from him. They don't even get a good picture of him. And was that down to the unexpectedness of Suarez's appointment or to El País's lack of enthusiasm for him? So Suarez, writes Ambassador Stabler, emphasised that he had no desire whatsoever to impose reform. And for this reason, he had undertaken a wide series of contacts with those representing the right, the centre, and the various groups in the non-communist opposition. The contacts he had had so far, so a month into his presidency, had been altogether positive. With regards to the law for political reform, the referendum that would follow the law for political reform, Suarez tells Stabler that he has eight possible options. So that's quite a number. But that he was determined to do everything he could to achieve a peaceful transition to representative democracy. And I think this cable nicely sums up the tone, the determination, and yes, the uncertainty in which the Spanish transition would unfold. Now, onto today's literary text, which was written during the Spanish transition. El Cuarto de Atrás, The Back Room, is a half autobiography, half fantasy novel. It tells the story of a woman, the author, Carmen Martín Gaite, who you see here on the right, who wakes up in the middle of the night and gets an unexpected visit from a mysterious man. The man wants to discuss Martin Gaite's work with her. They talk. She actually talks a lot to herself, although we don't know, she doesn't even know whether she's saying it out loud or not. So they talk about her childhood memories and her creative writing process over lemon tea. They're interrupted by a telephone call from an unknown um, woman. So um, Carmen talks to this unknown woman, and once she puts the phone down, goes back into the room, into her living room. The man is still there. She falls asleep on the sofa, but is suddenly woken up by her daughter, who is back at 5am uh, from a night out. The novel 
ends as Carmen reads through the first page of her new novel, which is actually the back room's opening paragraph. So the back room, uh, com so it comes full circle in both structure and plot. And it's a novel about writing as much about remembering. Martin Gaite came up with the idea to write the back room as she watched General Franco's funeral on TV. Um, I picked an excerpt which is in your handout. Um, it's on page three, it's the first one. I'll quickly read through it. Um, she says, I saw them there in their blue jeans and it seemed impossible. Um, she's talking about her daughter and her um, daughter's friend. So I saw them there in their blue jeans and it seemed impossible to me to explain to them my sudden emotion at the sight of Carmencita Franco, bereaved of that then paternal father, who sometimes was photographed with her by the press in inaccessible rooms during re brief respites from his dictatorial vigilance. It was all over, never again. Time unfroze. The man responsible for checking its flow and presiding over it had disappeared. Franco officially opening factories and reservoirs, decreeing death penalties, giving his daughter and the daughters of his daughter in marriage, speaking over the radio, watching the annual parade commemorating victory, Franco fishing for trout, Franco in the Paso de Meiras, that's his holiday home, Franco is on postage stamps, Franco in the newsreels, as we all grew older with him, under him. The funeral procession entered the basilica and we again saw the open grave. They're going to bury him, I thought. But it was a thought quite far removed from any political consideration. I was asking myself, rather, what this block of time had been like. I was thinking of it from the point of view of the game Red Light. I don't know if you follow me or not. Yes, of course I do. It was then that I realised I knew all about that period. I went upstairs to my apartment and began to jot things down in a notebook. That's the notebook I was looking for a while ago. So the book has an end of an era feel to it. And Martin Gaite signs off the book at the end with Madrid, November 1975, April 1975. So she um, clearly tells us that her writing process covered just about the whole Spanish transition. The author comes from a well-to-do background, and as children, um, Carmen tells us in her book, um, she and her sister were homeschooled. Their father, a notary, did not want them to go to a religious school run by nuns. Um, and she also tells us that her father owned a car, which is a big deal, um, before the start of the Civil War in the mid-1930s. And her family um, would go to Madrid often to stay with their grandmother, who had two maids working for her. So again, they're well off. In Madrid, they'd go out to the theatre, and that's Carmen's favourite outing, uh, which I will come back to in a minute. And, she, and, they get, and the family gets clothes made um, at a dressmaker in a very fancy part of town. So the dressmaker um, is uh, managed by a sister design duo, and one of the two sisters um, would, go, would model the different clothes. And Carmen thinks to herself, how odd, she even finds it violent, how odd can she, how can she go from model to manager. And the multiplicity of roles is a constant theme in Martin Gaite's novel, be it people or spaces, rooms. Indeed, 
Gadman recalls how the back room in her house, note here the book's title, went from playroom to pantry. The back room where I learned to play and read, she writes. So her pre-Civil War playroom becomes a wartime pantry. As rice, chocolate, soap, and stewed partridges, which she calls pot-bellied sarcophagi, um, take over her playroom, Carmen looks for a mental play space, a um, place where she and her friend, whose parents are imprisoned, um, can just uh, evade to. Childhood memories are very much part of Carmen's present. She remembers her socialist uncle on her mother's side, mother's side, who was shot by a firing squad in the Civil War, her friend whose parents were Reds, her other friend, um, the son of her phalangist, she says she prob they probably won't get on. Um, so, and children's games she used to play. Even Franco's daughter, Carmen Tita Franco, who she once saw in Salamanca, and that's because Carmen lives in Salamanca, uh, and that's a university town, it's the oldest university in the Spanish-speaking world. Um, and uh, Franco, during the war, um, sets up his headquarters in Salamanca. So that's why she sees his daughter there. She sees his daughter there. Uh, and she writes, um, I pitied her. She looked dreadfully bored, although I did like her hair. Memories, however, are also forgotten. Like when she tells the mysterious man, don't bother, it's not important. It was a memory of the war, but it has vanished. Drama and theatricality play an important role in the back room. She references Chekhov and Cervantes, um, and she tells us that she was herself uh, an actress during her time at university, and what the first play she put up was one of Cervantes's Entre Meses. That's a one-act farce. And even some of, the some of the passages in the book uh, seem like stage directions. And, um, when she's on the phone with the unknown lady, it feels like an interlude. So um, theatricality plays a role in how, uh, in the tone and in how um, Carmen Martin Gaite writes her novel. Um, many of the references in the book to Franco, to the Civil War, Franco's appropriation of um, Queen Isabella as an image of the ideal woman, even uh, the role of women generally uh, under the Franco regime, would have probably been censored had Martin Gaite written the book at a different time. Catherine O'Leary and Alison Ribeiro de Menete point out in their 2008 companion to Carmen Martin Gaite that the book's censor report, although somewhat negative due to the novel's anti-Francoist outlook and Martin Gaite's claims to have come up with a completely new genre, concludes that in the current circumstances, its content is not objectionable. So again, this idea of, yes, things are illegal, but we tolerate them. Um, by 1978, censorship laws, although still in place, were rather loose. Um, the report is in the General Administration Archive in Alcala, which is Cervantes' birthplace. And I think the census report very much speaks to the spirit of the times. Carmen Martin Gaites' The Backroom, I think, captures how, again in O'Leary and Ribeiro de Menete's words, following the death of Franco, 
It was as though the spell had been broken. Time is no longer paralysed, and it begins to flow in all of its forms and in all directions. As the narrator and her compatriots try to make sense of their new reality in the light of the past and in the face of decisions about a future identity. And one final point, in uh, Juan Lin's, when he goes back to his 1974 essay, Spain and Portugal, Critical Choices, he says when he, that when he rereads, um, rereads his essay, uh, it serves to correct the image of transition as a smooth and predestined process that a theoretical model developed ex post facto, so that's after the events have happened, might suggest. In other words, Spain's transition to democracy was not inevitable and was very much a product of agency. So next week, I will be talking about institutions of democracy, CIA reports, how to use them, and Javier Cercas's take on the 23rd February 1981 attempted military coup in Spain and how civil guards take over parliament for a few hours. So thank you and hope to see you there.